even the tough texts, like the one we're going to look at today, the ones that kind of hit us between the eyes, or the ones that you intend to shake us up, and to, to especially as we come to a new year and we're all making resolutions. Lord, you have some resolutions for us here right in this text, some resolutions about, about resolving to, to draw near to you, Lord, so that you'll draw near to us, to, to forsake the things of this world for you, Lord. We have a choice, a simple choice, and you're going to show us that today, and in a, in a pretty stern way. And so, Lord, I just ask that, that through this, through this uh, tough text that, that we see your great grace and your love for us, and, and we know that everything that you do, Lord, uh, everything that you do, uh, you do in love. And, and Lord, and, you, and all you expect from us is to love you back. Lord, show us that great truth and show us these things that you would teach us today. Lord, we can only learn them by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we can only seal them in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. So I ask that you just, you just bless us all today. Uh, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of James, and we'll be picking up in chapter number four today. James chapter number four. William Thackeray in his novel, Vanity Fair, some of you might have read that book, tells this story about a uh, group of weak, paltry characters uh, who are constantly engaged in bickering and sin. Someone once asked Thackeray, because he wrote some really good novels, and uh, one of his critics said, man, you, you write some great books, but you never have any heroes in your books. Why is that? I mean, why are all your characters so, so weak and and uh, uh, minuscule. I mean, why don't you have any heroes in your book? And he said, here's what he said. He says, I hold the mirror up to nature, and I do not find a hero among mankind. Instead, they are filled with littleness and pettiness and with strife. At the end of the book, Vanity Fair, he writes the following words, and it's it's kind of a, a very witty play on the condition of man. And listen to what he says. As he ends his book, he says, Come, children, let us shut up the box and the puppets, for our play is played out. That's a really adept description of a life of vanity, a life where we're nothing more than puppets in this world. Where a life where, where, which has no meaning, which has no purpose, which is spent on the folly of worldliness. There's a lot of us that spend our lives on worldliness. And here's the truth, the sad truth is this, that instead of the church impacting the world by making it less worldly, the world has come into the church and made it much more worldly. So in James's text today, and really the whole book you could say uh, this applies, he's going to address the church's worldliness. He's going to address your worldliness and my worldliness in a very damning way. I mean, if we keep pushing through this text, we might not have anybody here when, when it's all over with. Uh, I don't know if it's the holidays or the or James that's driving people away or my bad preaching is something, but, but uh, 
Man, that's, that's one thing about preaching verse by verse through the Bible. You, you just can't ignore texts like this. And every bit as much as Hebrews was the inspired word of God, James is the inspired word of God. And all James does really is carry on the theme of John's book. When John said, remember in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he said, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Well, that's a pretty damning statement too, isn't it? You understand what he's saying? Because our hope is this. Our hope is Christ in you, your hope of glory. But what John says and what James says, that if you, it's the world that's in you, if you, if you love the things of the world, then the Father's not in you, Christ is not in you, and you've lost your hope of glory. Man, that's a pretty sobering statement that John makes. That's, it's a pretty sobering book that we get here in the book of James. It's pretty scary. So here's the question we want to ask, first of all, as we look at this text, is what does James and John mean when they talk about the world? What are they talking about when they talk about the world? I mean, what is worldliness? I mean, some people would say that if, if you drink wine, you're worldly. If you go to R-rated movies, you're worldly. If you watch too much TV, you're worldly. If you like to eat at nice restaurants, you're worldly. Uh, if you like to dance, oh goodness, if you like to dance, you're really worldly. If you spend a lot of time shopping at malls, then you're worldly. Uh, others would say, uh, Roy, if you hunt, like to hunt, and you never get a deer, you're worldly. <laughs> I'm still waiting on my deer meat. Roy promised me deer meat. Last time he went hunting, he called me. He was out in the woods, and I said, don't come back to you unless you come back with a deer. And I still don't have my deer meat. <laughs> if you like to fish a lot, some people would say that you're worldly. I mean, others would say that if you don't read your Bible, regularly, then you're worldly. If you don't pray a lot, at least three times a day for at least an hour a day, then you're worldly. If you don't come to church every week, I'll put that one on there, you're worldly. If you don't give to the Lord's work, some would say you're worldly. Now, certainly some of those things that I just mentioned can contribute to your worldliness. But that's not the worldliness that James is speaking of or John is speaking of in his book. Let me tell you what he's speaking of. The, the, the Greek word that they use in both of their books for world is the Greek word cosmos. And what the Greek, cos, what the word Greek, the Greek word cosmos refers to is to the world system. You could say to the way of the world. And what's the way of the world? The way of the world is, is the way of the devil. It's demonic. And so, so they're looking at it from a little bit different standpoint. Now certainly, again, some of those things can contribute to your worldliness, but that's not what worldliness means. J James talked a little bit about one of the things that makes you worldly back in chapter 3. He talks about an uncontrollable tongue. If you don't control your tongue, that's the way of the world. You say what's on your mind. You don't care how it offends others. You just say it. You don't care. 
You set things on fire. James also mentions in chapter 3 bitterness and self-seeking and envy and gossip. These are the things of the world. They're not from above, James says. They are demonic. And when we're doing those things, every evil thing is present. And, and you can add to that list discord and division and pettiness and jealousy and strife. Those are the things that make you worldly and, unsp- and unspiritual. Paul had a list of worldly things. In fact, carnality and worldliness are pretty much synonymous. Remember, remember Paul's list over in Galatians chapter 5? Remember what he said? He gave that, those characteristics of carnality, which are really the characteristics of worldliness. He says sexual immorality, idolatry, contentions, Jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, revelries. That's a lot of the same things that James talks about in his book. And here's the problem. Here's where I see a problem in the modern church today. Much of what we teach in the modern church is focused on moral issues. In other words, there's a lot of teaching that goes on that, that, that uh, on drinking, on telling you the dangers of drinking, on, on drugs, on abortion, and on the big topic today is homosexual marriage. You hear a sermon every week if you listen on the radio about homosexual marriage. And, and while all of this preaching is going on about morality, the church at the same time is becoming more and more worldly. Now, I'm not saying that moral issues shouldn't be addressed in the church from time to time. Certainly, when you come upon those moral issues, you should address those moral issues. But they shouldn't be our main focus. That shouldn't be the main focus of our teaching. That shouldn't be the main focus of our Bible study, because that's not the main focus of the Bible. What our focus should be on is nurturing the new creation. Nurturing the new man or the new woman in Christ so we don't live a petty, insignificant, worldly life. But we live like the children of God that we're supposed to be. That's why we, you know, I wish we could go back to Hebrews. I talked to my dad the other day and he's left James and he's gone back to Hebrews. Uh, he, I'm sure he'll be listening to this message, but... but uh, he said, man, just Hebrews was just so good. The study of Hebrews was just so rich. It was so spiritual. Well, I like staying in books like that. I'll drag them out as long as I can. I don't know how long we were in Hebrews, but, but I didn't want to leave Hebrews because I knew where we were going to James. And, and, and uh, I mean, that's important. And most of the epistles and most of the New Testament and, and really all of the Old Testament is heading that way is about the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. It's about the new nature. It's about drawing near to God in the holiest of holies so that we can become more holy ourselves, so that we can be changed from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about, and that's where the focus of our teaching should be. And But here's the problem. A lot of Christians neglect the study of the Word. And so they aren't growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. They aren't being changed from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. And so not only do they do immoral things, but they become more and more worldly. I promise you this. I promise you this. 
If your focus is on this world, you're going to become more and more worldly. If your focus is on God through his word, through prayer, then you're going to become more and more spiritual. So we go out of a great book like Hebrews. Maybe we should have gone back to Romans, Colossians, Ephesians, man, uh, uh, 1 John, 2 John, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Maybe we should have gone there. But God in this interlude sends us this hellfire and brimstone preacher named James, his own brother, by the way, his own blood brother. And he sends him to us to call us names, to call us names, to call us out on the carpet. I mean, he calls us some bad things in this book. He calls us adulterers, and he just so you women get in there too, adulteresses, adulterers and adulteresses. In, in chapter 4, he calls some of us enemies. We're his enemies because of our worldliness. You get to chapter, you, I mean, in chapter 4, you get to verse number 8. We'll see that in a minute. He calls us sinners. You sinners, James said. You double-minded, he says. And then he comes on and he, instead of cheering us up, he says, lament and mourn your situation. Put your joy away, put your happiness away, and lament and mourn the state that you're in. Because I think God is using James to very sternly tell us that it's about time. You want a New Year's resolution for 2016? Here it is. It's about time we rid ourselves of our worldliness so we can become more and more like Jesus Christ. That's what God wants us to do in 2016. That's what he wants us to do for the rest of our lives, to become more and more like Christ. But we can't do that unless we rid ourselves of our worldliness. And he tells us about it beginning in chapter 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Now, I don't think he's talking about nations here. Not at all. Because he directs this to who? To you. Among you. Among you. Among who? Who is he speaking of? Among, in the midst of the church. Where are these battles, maybe a better word, where do these battles and fights that we have with each, other, with each other come from? Where do the battles and fights that you have in your home come from? Where do the battles and fights that you have in the workplace with your neighbors, where do they come from? That's what he's addressing there. Where do they come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure that, that, that war in your members? That's where they come from. They come from our desire to please our flesh. And really, I, I think the key word there is our pride. They come from our pride. Our desire to be better than others. Our desire to have more than others. That's where our wars and battles come from. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Then he goes on in verse number two and he says, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet. And, and murder here can be anger. You get angry with people. You, you have a rift with people and you covet what they have. You covet their position in life. You cover their, covet their material wealth. And you cannot obtain it. And you get mad. And you get mad and so you get bitter and you get nasty and you have that uncontrollable tongue and you fight and you war. But listen to what he says. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. 
In other words, you're trying to fight this battle yourself. You're trying to put yourself in a greater position above others yourself. And the reason you're, you're in the position you're in is because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. See, when we are selfishly lusting to have more, to get ahead of everyone else, that is worldliness. That is worldliness. Godliness with contentment is what? It's great gain. When we're constantly wanting more, and, and what's, what's the root behind that wanting more? It's wanting more so we can be better than others. And so we can, you can put it into one word, it's pride. It's pride. And that's the way of the world. What's the way of the world? What's the way of the United States? And this is where it, why it's so tough on American Christians. Because that's the way of the world. It's dog-eat-dog. It's survival of the fittest. We sing that song, I did it my way. But we shouldn't be people who do it our way. We should be people who do it whose way? God's way. See, so what we should be doing, we should accept our status in life to some degree. And if we don't like our status in life, then we should trust God to change it. If, if he sees fit, he will change it. And, and, and the problem is we don't ask. We don't ask. I, I think so many Christians, the last thing they do is to ask God. They try everything else, and then when everything else has failed, they ask God. That should be the first thing we do. You know why we don't ask God most of the time? Because we know that... that God doesn't like what we're asking for, and he's not going to give it to us, so we're going to get it anyway. I mean, so many Christians I see fall into this trap. They buy something, they go into debt to buy something they don't need, and they, and they didn't ask God about it because they, God would have said, don't do that. And, and even if we do ask, we ask amiss because what we want to do, we want to spend what God gives us on our own selfish pleasure. You know, Jesus made a very startling statement in John chapter 14. You remember what he said? He said this. He said, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. What's whatever mean in the Greek? Whatever. Anything you ask for in my Father's name, I mean in my name, I will do that my Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, you understand what he's saying right there? Anything that you ask for that will glorify the Son, you'll get. Anything, everything you ask for. The reason we don't get those things is we don't, we don't care about those things. And so we don't ask for those things. And when we ask, we ask amiss. We ask to spend whatever God gives us on our selfish pleasure. We could care less about glorifying Jesus Christ. And so we fail in our prayers. You know, God longs to give us the desires of our heart. 
He longs to give us the desires of our heart. But first, you know what he wants to do? He wants to change the desires of our heart. And the more and more you live this life in the presence of God, the more and more the desires of your heart change. You know, Paul tells us in Ephesians 3 that, or in Ephesians 1, that, that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. All we got to do is ask for it. Paul tells us in Ephesians 3 to pray. When we pray, God is able to give us exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or think. We're told in the book of Hebrews that Christ ever intercedes for us, that he's always praying for us. Not that we'll get a new Cadillac or a new motorcycle or a new house or anything like that. Maybe he does at times. If we need it, he'll be praying for it. But that we'll become more like him. That we'll live closer in his presence. You know, I think it's a great thing to learn to pray about the most important things in life. I love the little exhortation on prayer by the mystic Philanelon. He says, listen to what he says. He says, tell God all that is in your heart as one who unloads one's hearts, its pleasures, its pains, as to a dear friend. Tell him your troubles that he may comfort you. Tell him your joys that he may sober them. Tell him your longings that he may purify them. Tell him your dislikes that he may help you conquer them. Talk to him of your temptations that he may shield you from them. Show him the wounds of your heart that he may heal them. Lay bare your indifference to good, your depraved taste for evil, your instability that he may fix them. Tell him how self-love makes you unjust to others, how vanity tempts you to be insincere, how pride disguises you, you to yourself as to others. He goes on to say, if you thus pour out all your weaknesses and your needs and your troubles, there will never be lack of things to say to him. So you pray along those lines, you've got a lot to pray about. I've got a lot to pray about. And then he says, blessed are those who attain to such familiar, unreserved intercourse with God. You know, we are fools. Foolish. When we don't take every need we have, every desire we have, every goal we have, every hurt we have, every pain we have, when we don't take that to God. But you know what? Most of us don't give God a chance to help us. We, we don't ask. Or we ask amiss. We ask for the things we really don't need. We focus our prayers on the things we really don't need. And so, because we do that, James is going to call us a bunch of names. Look at what he says. You adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Do not love the things of the world, John says. If you love the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in you. James puts it even harsher. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
What he's saying is, you guys are a bunch of, all of us are a bunch of spiritual harlots. We've forsaken the true lover, our, our, our loving Lord, for another lover. We've fallen in love with the world. We've fallen in love with the world system. And that puts us in grave danger. It puts us in danger of being at enmity, an enemy of God, just like the rest of the world. I don't know about you, but I don't think it's profitable. I don't think it's very wise to be an enemy of God. I want to be a friend of God. And I can't love this world and at the same time be friendly to God. So he says in verse number five, he says, or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in you, us, earns, yearns jealously? I mean, the spirit is jealous. You know who is he jealous for? He's jealous for you. Why is he jealous for you? Because he loves you. You know, I'm jealous of my wife. I don't want her messing around with any other men. Leave my wife alone. I'll punch you out. I mean, I'm jealous. If you don't care enough about your wife to love your wife and be jealous of your wife, man, you need, a, you need I don't want to tell you to get a divorce, but you got, you're in bad shape. I love my wife. And I want her to love, spend her time loving me. Well, you think God in, a, in an infinite more way isn't different? I mean, he loves you. He's jealous for you. He doesn't want you uh, being a harlot with the world, with the things of the world. He wants you in love with him. Our problem is we've got one foot in the world. This is my problem. It might not be yours, but I get, I'm trying to hang one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. And it doesn't work. All it does is rob me of my relationship with the Lord. Look at verses 6 and 7. Look at, the, look, at, look at what he offers you. But he gives more grace. I mean, not to the worldly, but to those who love the Lord. To those who want to walk in a close relationship with the Lord. He gives, the Bible says he gives grace upon grace. One great, one gift after the other. If you want to walk with the Lord and not be worldly. But look at the contrary. I mean, look at the opposite of that. God resists the proud. He resists the worldly. But he gives grace to the humble. I tell you what, worldliness is synonymous with human pride. It's synonymous with human pride. I mean, human pride is godless we don't need god we don't like god human pride is against god man we have a political group of people today that stand up and say we don't need you god man we shouldn't be like that and we might not say that but by our actions you can tell whether or not you need god or not i mean if when you're in trouble the first thing you do is to try to fix it yourself you, you're saying the same thing. I don't need you, God. I can do this myself. No, we are those who need God. Pride, what's the source of pride? Who's the source of pride? The devil. 
Pride is demonic. Worldliness is demonic. Two things happen. Look at this text. When we, when we humble ourselves before the Lord, two things happen. Let me, let me finish verse 6 first. But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore submit to God, verse number 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, I hear people, this is the classic verse. This isn't even a full verse that is taken out of context. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And I'm afraid I might have done this before. But you understand what a lot of people say? They say, if you got the magic words, if you say, I rebuke you, devil, he'll flee from you. That devil ain't going anywhere because you rebuke him. He's right there. Maybe if you're the apostle Paul and you're living like he lived, walking in a close walk and you're full of the spirit, the devil is going to flee you when you speak. But it's not the magic words. You know, everybody's, everybody's trying to say, oh, Paul's chased them away so I can chase them away. You better be careful. They're going to jump all over you. That's what happened to some people who thought they could do it themselves. No, that's totally out of context. I mean, the other, the other, I've heard it preached, and again, I might have been guilty of preaching this myself. If you'll just suck it up, when the devil's harassing you and giving you a hard time, if you'll just suck it up really good and you get really strong and you resist him with all your might, then he's going to flee from you. No, you are not strong as the devil. He's not going anywhere. You want to know what makes him flee from you? Look at the context. What makes him flee from you? Submit to God. That's what makes the devil flee from you. Therefore, therefore, if you want more grace, if you want grace upon grace, that's what the therefore is there. If you want the devil to flee from you, then submit to God and he will flee from you. See, there's two promises right here that we're going to, if we'll, if we'll humble ourselves before God and flee, rid ourselves of this worldliness, that we'll receive grace upon grace. And when we submit to God, we'll be resisting the devil and he will flee from us. You know, I, I, I've got some experience in this with 25 years of ministry. And, I, and, and my own personal life. Demonic oppression. A lot of you are demonic, or not a lot of you, but some of you are demonically oppressed and you don't even know it. You might be taking medicine for it. I might say you don't take medicine. You might need to take a lot of it if you're demonically oppressed. But the reason you can link demonic oppression to worldliness, to worldliness, I have never known a soul who was deeply involved in their relationship with God, deeply involved in their study of the word, deeply involved in prayer, who was demonically oppressed. And let me tell you why. Because when you're close to the Lord, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. The devil hates the Spirit of God. And so he doesn't want to be in, in the presence of the Spirit of God. And if you're demonically oppressed, I'll tell you why. Because you're not filled with the Spirit of God. 
And so submit to God. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourself. And those devils will flee. Those devils will flee from you. You know, I know in my own personal life, there have been times when I know that, I'm de- that demons are oppressing me. And I, they start, I, I, I can see it in other people too. i tell you how you can tell it to be. You'll be talking to me and I'll be looking out over here and it sounds like I'm listening to somebody else. And they'll be saying one thing after the other, faster than I could possibly think, one evil thought after the other. You know what I found the solution for that is? You want to get rid of them? Get down on your knees. Get into the word of God. You know what I normally do? I have a pity party and I listen to them and I listen to everything they have bad to say about me. And I, and, and I, and I get depressed. And that's what most of us do. So there's a solution. Submit to God and they'll flee from you. Look at the next verse. You know, James is, is really chewing us out and at the same time telling us some wonderful truths here. Listen to what he says. I mean, you bunch of adulterers, you sinners, you double-minded jerks. Listen to what he says in verse number 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What a great promise. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And then he goes back to putting us down. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know, the opposite of worldliness is godliness. You draw near to the world, and you're going to be worldly. You draw near to God, and you're going to be godly. That's your choice. Duh, which one do you take? Draw near to the world and, and be oppressed by demons and be, world, be an enemy of God? Is that the choice you make? No, we draw near to God. And look at the wonderful promise that he gives us right here, that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. How do we turn from the world and draw near to God? Well, he tells us right here, first of all, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Cleanse your hands. What does he say, cleanse your hands? He mean go wash your hands in the sink? No, get your hands out of all the dirty things they're into, all the evil they're into, and he could add the feet, the mouth, the tongue, the ears, every part of your body. Cleanse it. Purify it. Separate yourself unto the Lord. And he says there, he says, purify yourself. How do I purify myself? How do I wash myself clean? You know how you do that? Through the word and through prayer. Through the word and through prayer. Friday night on Amazon Prime, I watched a movie called Bone Tomahawk. And I'm not recommending that movie. In fact, it, it was unrated, so I figured it, you know, I meant it wasn't bad. That's wrong. You can, don't, don't, don't use unrated to determine something. Actually, I thought it was a great movie, but it was about these Indian cannibals who capture these people, and they show stuff in that movie I've never seen in a movie before in my life. And I got up Saturday, Saturday night, I went to, my wife said, we'll never watch that movie again. Or Mad Max Fury Road. None, none of those. She won't let me watch that either. And I love that movie. I, I do watch some bad things. But I, I got up Saturday morning 
And I was seeing this guy being ripped in half. You know, that's what happens in the movie. And this guy's scalp being taken off. And I, I thought, get that out of my head. How do I get that? It just kept popping up in my head, that image that I saw in that movie. I said, man, I got to get this out of my head. And you know what I did to get it out of my head? Now it's coming back. But you know what I did to get it? <laughs> but you know what I did to get it out of my head? I got on my knees and I prayed. And, I, and that image kept popping in my head, kept popping in my head. And I kept praying. And I kept praying. Then I got into the Word and I got into my study. Before long, it was gone. That's how you cleanse yourself of all this evil dirt we get when we get in the world. Where did I leave off? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. A lot of us are double-minded. That means we've got one foot of the world and, and one foot uh, in the kingdom of heaven. It just won't work. We should be single-minded. And then he goes on, and, and listen to what he says in verse number 9. He says, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Man, cheer us up for 2016, James. <laughs> Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your, your joy to gloom. Who is he speaking to right here? He's not speaking to the lost. He's speaking to worldly Christians. To carnal Christians. The reason I know that, because in verse 1 or chapter 1, uh, verse 2, he said, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So James wants us to have joy, but he wants spiritual people to have joy, people who can count it all joy when they fall into various trials. But if you're a carnal Christian and you're living for this world and you think because God has blessed you with a new car or a new home and you're all excited and you're jumping for joy he said don't jump for joy about that because if you're still worldly you better lamb in and mourn you better weep you better let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom because you are an enemy of God you're an enmity with God I think that's a message that needs to go out to this nation this nation, we're jumping for joy when the stock market goes up. We're jumping for joy when we get new things. We're jumping for joy when, when we get our salary raised. We're jumping for joy for all the wrong reasons. And James says, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom because you're going to go to hell if that doesn't change. Man, if you're worldly, you're at enmity with God. You better lamb in and you better mourn. I don't care what possessions you've got, what position you have in life. You can be the president of the United States, the vice president, the senator, the wealthiest Donald Trump. But if that's all you've got in life, you better lamb in and you better mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then he finishes up in verse number 10 and he says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You want real success? You want real success in life? Then quit bowing down to the things of this world and worship the only one, bow down to the only one who's worthy of worship, and that's the Lord himself. Humble yourself, it says, in the sight of the Lord, 
And what's he going to do? He's going to lean. He's going he's to lift you up. How do you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord? You trust in the Lord with all your heart. You lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, you acknowledge him. And he will guide your paths. And he will guide your path in a way that you have real success, eternal success, in a way that your life has real meaning. What's the folly of worldliness? Let me tell you the folly of worldliness. It keeps you from experiencing the presence of God. It keeps you from experiencing the presence of God. It puts a wedge between you and the Lord. And it opens you up to all sorts of demonic oppression. And you know, I think maybe the greatest folly is this. That it hinders our prayer life. It keeps us out of the prayer closet. And even when we are in the prayer closet, if we're worldly, our prayers become so self-centered that we hinder what the process of what God wants to do in our life. That we lose our joy, that we lose our peace. I believe through James, if people would listen, God is crying out to the church today to repent, repent of our worldliness and listen to the promises that he makes if we'll do that. Submit your ways to him and he will lift you up. God gives grace upon grace to the humble. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You ever go into your prayer closet and just to draw near to God? You do that, he'll draw near to you. And the devil and his demons will flee. Now, I'll tell you what. James really gives us a gold mine of spiritual wealth right here in this little book. If we'll just forsake that folly of worldliness and live in a closer relationship with the Lord, you know, tell him what the Lord's going to do for you in 2016. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll do the Lord's Supper. Father, we just thank you for your grace. Lord, I, I know in my own life that, that I'm way, way, way too worldly, Lord. Father, and I know in my own life that because of that, that I allow to be, myself to be oppressed by demons. Lord, that I miss out on the great relationship that you have for me, this, this experience of your nearness in my life. Lord, and I, I think most of us in this room can confess that same condition. And so, Lord, if we can make a resolution for 2016, let it be this, Lord. Let it be that we rid ourselves of our worldliness. That we humble ourselves before you. That we draw near to you. 
that we're filled with your spirit and the devil's flee. Lord, and that we live the kind of life you would have us live in 2016 and for the rest of eternity. So I ask that this charge be something that you plant deep in our hearts that changes us all for the better. Lord, we ask that in Christ's name. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. opportunity it can be excitement but it, it can be intimidating too and sometimes when we, we we've seen ourselves bound up in sin for so long it seems like I've, I've done what I can do I just, I just don't think I can really change anymore but as we fix our eyes on Jesus even the thoughts we have, even the things we believe, even the, the, the DNA that we're made of, the spiritual DNA that we're made of changes as you worship, as you get into his word. So, Father, we worship you this morning, Lord. Father, we sing these words, we sing these songs, God, not just trying to get our emotions aroused into a to, to, to feel right in the worship service, God. But Father, as an expression of what our hearts long for, to be close to you, Lord. So 
there are two things that are happening when we observe the Lord's Supper. First thing that's happening, we're humbling ourselves before the Lord so that He can lift us up. We're saying to the Lord that without your shed blood and without your broken body, Lord, we remain worldly people. We would be enemies of God. We would be lost forever. It's by your work on the cross that we're lifted up to be children of God. You know the second thing that happens when we take the Lord's Supper is we draw near to God. And what does James promise? If we draw near to God, He draws near to us. There's only one means by which God will draw near to us. And that's by appropriating the work of the cross, by appropriating the shed blood and broken body for our sins. And when we do that, and we draw near to God, He draws near to us. And that tells me that He's right here in this room. If you've drawn near to God through the blood of Jesus Christ, He's in your heart. And He's going to be in your heart forever. Paul said on the night of the Lord's Supper, or he said about the night of the Lord's Supper, he said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. I want to stand and we'll close the song. Sorry, Lord, for living life to our own advantage. Sorry, Lord, for feeding the mouths of our own ambition. Sorry. 
just have a label of being Christians, God, but to be friends of God, to be a people that can turn to you and have the creator of the universe draw close to us, God. So, Father, we do. We turn, we turn our eyes to you this morning. We draw close to you, God. Father, I pray a, a blessing over everyone here today, God, that as we go, go about our ways, go back about our business, God, Father, that our hearts can be turned to you in a deep way, God, in a special way, Lord. Father, that our hearts can be desiring you, pursuing you, Lord. We may be going about doing the same things, the same actions that we always do, God, but let our hearts be for our King. And we thank you. We thank you for it all in Jesus' name. God bless you guys. Have a good week. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Amen. Amen.